What's up, everyone? Welcome to another edition of the Delivered Lumens podcast. Um, I want to be really transparent with you guys. June has been an absolutely insane month for me. Um, I recorded this episode early on in the month um, and wanted to get it posted sort of in the middle of Pride Month. It looks like by the time this goes live, it will be almost the end of Pride Month, but um, I had a really in-depth and interesting conversation with Alana Shepard. Um, she's a lighting designer. She's an advocate. Um, and I think the heart of this conversation, we talk about light and controls and all the nerdy lighting things that you might expect to industry professionals to talk about. But when we shift into a conversation around advocacy and identity, um, we really get to the heart of what it is to be a creative person in a professional world and acceptance and empathy and the things that shift the pride conversation from a political one where it becomes about um, strange rules. Um, we start by talking about Alana's design history in the industry, some of the marquee projects that she's worked on over the course of her career. And then we shift into advocacy, and that was done purposefully because I think it's important that we focus on a person being a person and not just one aspect of who they are. Listen, there's a lot of really great stuff in here, whether you're a lighting nerd like Alana and I are, or you're interested in how we move forward as a culture. I think there's a lot of, um, we touch on a lot of that as well as we go forward. Um, thank you, by the way, for subscribing to the podcast, for sharing it with your friends. If this episode's valuable, please do the same. Um, I believe that we are creating a broader conversation with this show and we are introducing the lighting community to a broader community and that's something we all need. So please like and share this if you get a chance. Um, tell your friends about it. Send me emails, mail at deliveredlumens.lighting. Talk about what you'd like to see on the show or hear on the show. Um, you can find us on YouTube. You can find us on your favorite podcast apps. Uh, thanks so much. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Alana Shepard. Well, hello, Alana. Welcome to the Delivered Lumens podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, JP. How are you? Um, well, to, uh, today is the 8th of June, and um, it's raining less ash in New York City, so I'm, I'm better than I was yesterday. It was pretty, it was pretty terrifying yesterday. Yeah, uh, I looked it. <laughs> so in the infancy of this little podcast, this little show that I've, I've started, you are only the second lighting designer to join me. Um, but I think your path through lighting is pretty common for, uh, for the industry because you started in theatrical lighting and we're going to get into where you are today. Um, but why don't you talk about how you got turned on to lighting in the beginning, how you got started in this whole thing, and then we can kind of go from there. Okay. Uh, it's true. My path is, is a, a common one. I started in theater in high school and in college. I was mostly on stage, and then I did electrics for a show, and I really enjoyed that. And electrics led to just more of a more of an interest in lighting in general. I started taking the design track classes, and from there I was hooked. I designed yeah. one show, and I designed another, and another, and another, and <sighs> the rest. Yeah, that's how it happened for me too. I was uh, the kid that wanted to like build sets and make it snow and do all that stuff in high school. And then um, it wasn't until college that I actually started lighting stuff, but uh, but it was a, a similar path. Um, and so for me, when it came to lighting, I really liked the aspect of assisting the director in telling the story. Was it a story-driven thing for you, or was it more about the aesthetics and, and what people were looking at on stage? I'm just trying to think at, at first what, what initially drew me. Uh, it was it really was, I think, 
the aesthetics, uh, mm. what I can do to move people, which I, I guess in a way is also a bit story, but it's 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 the manipulation factor. <laughs> <laughs> right, because light is, you know, I, I think it's underappreciated. And one of the purposes of this show is to try and bring the purpose of lighting design out to a larger population, a larger group. And um, I think it's underappreciated in, in so far as the pictures that we're seeing, whether that's on stage or in your favorite TV show or movie, is the visuals of light are very key or, or an important key to how we understand a story, how we understand character. Um, how did, um, how, now, you were exclusively doing theater for how long? Nine years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, regionally or around New York City or both or oh regionally this was this is in the northwest I was oh okay okay yeah this is this is starting in you know I'm counting beginning of college yeah um and yeah just doing college and local regional stuff yeah and then when I moved to New York City after grad school I switched exclusively to architectural lighting so talk about the move through grad school that was grad school architectural lighting study focus or more theatrical lighting and then you came to new york and did architectural it was theatrical lighting uh okay. I, I uh I, I did the mfa program at carnegie mellon okay okay and so what what brought you from theater to architecture the need for a steady paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that too. <laughs> in, in my last, in my last months of grad school, I got engaged, and uh, we went where the first one of us found work, and that was that was my wife at the okay. time, or my fiance at the time actually, and um, so I followed her, and. I felt a very, very compelling need to pay the rent. Yeah. So, uh, so I started looking for steady work, and that led me to Focus Lighting, where I got my first job in architectural lighting, and that's where I stayed. Well, I stayed in architectural lighting for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, I think it's this is an interesting for people that aren't necessarily lighting people. Um. The skill sets of theatrical lighting, while specific to that, you know, that craft in in some aspects, are also universal. Um, what what aspects of theatrical lighting design to you port over well into architecture? Because I know this is kind of a growing debate in the industry about the the you know stronger path into architectural lighting. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, it's. I, I think I think the sense of drama informs so much. I, I mm. think it's a it's less a less technical approach and more emotional approach. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel like there's more soul in it. Yeah. 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 So I think that's an interesting comment. I think that the the nature of theatrical lighting is much more hands on, even for you know I I never. Personally, I never designed anything, you know, at the the Broadway level or anything like that. But I worked with several Broadway lighting designers, and even they liked to get out of the chair and like grab a fixture. Like if we weren't in a union house and they didn't have to, to worry about those things, it was like they would pick up a, a light and they'd start to play with how it was going to sit on the set or how it was going to strike something. Um, it's a more hands-on medium, I think, than typically architectural lighting is until the very last steps. Um, and I think it gives you a different appreciation for lighting instruments, lighting fixtures, luminaires in general, and how they work in a space. Um, I was somebody that, like, I've I, to this day, I really, I've only played with AGI a couple times in my whole life, right? Because I just never had to learn it. I got out of the architectural side before it was a, a, a strict requirement to have that skill. Um, does the pacing of architectural projects bother you? Because it always bothered me. I was always used to theater stuff where it was like, <laughs> we talk about it in January, it's on its feet in March, right? Like, Yes, yeah, yes and no. Um, mm. each, each discipline has its own strengths and weaknesses, mm -hmm. or pluses and minuses. 
if you will. I mean, I, I appreciate the permanence or the perceived permanence of an architectural project. Sure. Uh, however, with a theatrical project, you see it at its best and it stays that way. Uh, and it's, you know, it may be momentary, it may be fleeting, but it's perfect that entire time. And something that I've noticed and lamented is with an architectural project, no matter how how thoroughly you document it, how well you leave an O&M manual, uh, it tends to degrade over time. Nobody loves it as much as you do. At least that's, yeah. that's my take on that. That's interesting. Well, I have two questions about that. The first would be, do you think that LED is improving that degradation at all? Or do you think that it's still a, a, a an issue? It definitely complicates it. It's, yeah. The advent of LED has only brought so many more layers of complexity and points of failure. You now, mm. have to, you, you now have to align the source with the power supply, with the dimming, you know, with the dimmer. Mm. Uh, and it's... It's a rare person who has that all straight all the time. And it's certainly almost never the operator or owner. Just to broaden this out to a, the wider audience, what are some, do you think that part of the degradation here is that light is one of the few things in a building system that is, for lack of a better term, burning something, right? We were burning tungsten. We were sort of burning fluorescent gases. Now we're burning phosphor and we're making light that way. And because of that, there is just a natural degradation. It may be slower because of the new technology, but it's, it's still happening. I have a, a little bit of a pet theory about this, that because of the longer degradation of LEDs, what's going to happen is we're going to have lower quality light than we did with fluorescent because fluorescent fixtures just fails, right? Like lamps would just go out and people would notice it. Now we're going to get these slow, you know, sort of grading failures and weird oh, color shifts and stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. We're already seeing it. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're 10 years out from the beginning of using white LED as a viable source. Mm -hmm. um, or, should, or I should say 10 years in, rather. Um, and, you know, vi <laughs> viable in air quotes. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, but since it started to be started to be used somewhat regularly, uh, and we're definitely seeing that exact kind of failure, uh, mm -hmm. slow, sad, degradation. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I think the average person who doesn't think about this stuff every day um, might not notice this until it's acutely bad, right? Um, and I wonder about what that means for our, our spaces. It's a, it's a good question. I think uh, perhaps the answer lies in finding finding a way toward more standardization in terms of sources and a way to uh, a way to measure and replace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but that that gets expensive. You know, onboard sensors and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, creating creating failures uh, that otherwise would live on and just be of poor quality. Let's talk about some of the the real sort of key projects or marquee projects that you've worked on over the course of your career. Right? The one that uh, I see you post about at least once a year is the ball in Times Square. Um, usually in late December, uh, big surprise. What was your role in that project? I was... I was brought into the project as the assistant assistant designer. I was at Focus Lighting at the time, so I was working in Christine Hope's studio mm -hmm. uh, as as her junior. And uh, in my role, I ended up researching and specifying the control system, which was a EQ lighting application suite. And um, in the process of that, I ended up programming it. <laughs> uh, I, they they had a programmer uh Jörg Moritz who uh who who started out doing the work and I too often I was I was trying to convey the specifics of the need and and over the course of learning the software and what its capabilities were I realized that I was getting capable enough to just do it so sure. too often I would like shove Jörg aside and just start doing it. And, and before long, he was just watching me. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I just ended up taking it over. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And how? what kind of a, a timeline for that process was it? How long did it take to program the ball? It was about six weeks. I was up at okay. Hudson Studio for, for six weeks uh, for a six-hour show. And was this um, – were you programming it and seeing it live, or was this all pre work? It was a combination. Primarily, okay. I was sitting right in front of it, but I would go back to the office and do offline work with a pre-visualizer. Okay, okay. So I think that, you know, this is another thing just to sort of reach back and, and, and point out to people. What is possible on the technology side is almost infinite. Um, we've gotten to a place where lighting is essentially 100% digital now through through the use of LED as a source. And because of that, we can do almost anything if the time and resources are allocated to doing it. And what you just heard is that it takes six weeks to program the Times Square ball, right? Because of all the animations and all the intricate things that it was doing. If you're willing to dedicate that kind of time and those kinds of resources, you can make incredible things happen. Um, and that hap that scales up and down, right? So whether we're talking about simple things in a relatively simple like retail space or a hospitality space, all the way up to Times Square, there's there's the capabilities are there. It's about just utilizing imagination and giving professionals the resources they need to to actually do the work, right? Uh, was that the most um, time and and space you were given to work on something like that? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, the most yeah. breathing room. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, that was. That was kind of a sandbox. I was I was given the space to to play and to learn because it was still mm -hmm. a new software for me. Like if I had to, to do over again, I could probably do the same show in much less time. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, but I I also have many years of experience with that software under my belt now. Sure. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I would say that is that was the the most space I've ever been given. Yeah. Yeah. In architecture projects, do you feel like controls are the the, uh, the biggest pain point still, or is it installation? What are the things that you see on the architectural side that are sort of the biggest pain point to seeing a successful design go through? It, it's certainly a failure point. It's often mm. overlooked, forgotten, just just sort of given lip service, mm -hmm. uh, or, or misspecified. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, happens all the yeah. time. The, I'm not really a technologist in this sense. Like, I don't really understand why the market works the way it does, but I know that on the computer side, a long time ago, we kind of standardized on certain controls protocols and certain communication protocols, and that enabled you know hardware and software manufacturers to flourish, right? Because they knew what standards they were building to. On the theatrical side, we still use DMX as a, a you know the base, you know protocol not because it hasn't been you know supplant or or technically it hasn't been replaced or or moved past but because it's a standard that everyone can build to right like it's a way that we can still work um i am so curious and frustrated as to why we haven't come to a similar place on the architectural side it just seems inevitable or, or if there's just too many interests involved i'm not sure i, I think you might have hit hit on it there too many interests yeah. 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 But that didn't happen in theater. I guess USITT just said, this is what we're going to do. And then, you know, that became a standard. We don't have that from on the architectural side. There's no body getting involved to say, this is what we all should build to, right? Yeah, not so much. Uh, you know, I, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head is there there are too many, too many voices in the room, you might say. Mm. Uh, and the analogous body uh, I think maybe has a lot of influence from from these different entities keeping that from happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can't say that for sure, but that's I would speculate that surely. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's that or if it's just that, like you know, you're dealing with a lot of legacy stuff, and so there's a concern about well, you know how are you going to move a new dimming protocol into every house in America? You know, that I, I'm sure that those kinds of conversations happen. Um, 
but I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, we all got on the internet, like we all figured it out, right? Like we all figured out that networking, right? So I, I'm just, I'm skeptical that it's not possible. I think it, it would be if we just decided this is how we were gonna how we were gonna work. One of the most standard protocols is zero to ten. We see it specified most of the time in commercial dimming. I'll say here in the United States. Um, where did that even come from? Why is that what we're doing? Um, and do we think it's effective? It's it's the closest thing we have to default. Is it mm -hmm. effective? Um, there are definitely better protocols out there. Right. Uh, it, I think it's unnecessarily complicated for from an installation standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there there are more more advanced and simpler from a from a topology standpoint protocols out there that could supplant it but but you know like we were saying it's a matter of standardization yeah yeah it's standardization and accepting that any protocol that was selected is not necessarily the perfect protocol it's just better than what we have and it's something that we can build to um I think that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Um, one more project that I had on my list that I wanted to ask you about was W Hotel in Times Square. Your your marquee projects all seem to be happening around Times <laughs> Times Square. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, and uh, in past introductions, I, I've often said, and I do other projects not in Times Square. <laughs> so talk about the W. Talk about what that what what was that project like, and what were some of the um, some of the ups and downs of it. Okay, that happened when I was at Bold, uh, and uh, ups and downs. I would say it's mostly ups. It was a really positive yeah. project. It turned out beautifully. I was working with mm. with uh, Josh Held. Uh, he was in he was the interior designer. Came up with a great design and a great concept of having these digital clock walls. And mm. as soon as as soon as he said that, I just ran with it. It's like I can make this happen. <laughs> That's I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. And so, yeah. talk a little bit about these digital clocks. Let's let's talk about what 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 do we uh, what do we see when we walk in there? Okay. On so we're talking about the living room at W Hotel Times Square, which is which is the registration area, lobby, and it's also the bar and kind of lounge area. It's all sort of combined on the seventh floor of the W. Mm. On one end, behind the registration desks, there is a large digital clock wall. It's made up of several 13-segment LED, like large-scale, I think like two foot by, or two and a half foot by one foot or something like that, 13-segment mm. uh, LED characters, basically. There's a similar wall on the other end of the room behind a DJ booth, a DJ booth of... A DJ booth that's that's spherical, sort of stylized after the Times Square ball, and there's there's a banquette, a curved banquette behind it with a curved digital clock wall. That's very cool. Yeah, and these walls show patterns and and just just sort of ambient displays most of the time, and every uh, I think it's on the hour most of the year. It, it pops up a little countdown clock to New Year's. Like, there's no indication of what that countdown clock is, but... <laughs> uh, and, and then as it gets closer to New Year's, like, I think in the month of December, it starts being every 15 minutes. Okay. Countdown pops up. And then New Year's Eve, there is a show that is uh, synced, at least as far as, like, queue structure-wise, synced to the Times Square Ball itself. Because, you know, I happen to have that show file. <laughs> well, there you go. You had some insider knowledge there. That's pretty yep. funny. That's yep. awesome. That's very, very cool. And do you know if that show runs to this day? Yeah, it does. I actually was, I was there last December and I refreshed it. Well, there you go. So this is an ongoing project. I didn't know if this was a, one you get, you walked away from or you got to come back to. That's fantastic. That's really cool. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about, um, I'm going to say the full name just so people understand what the, the acronym, we're going to say the acronym a bunch in the conversation, but I want to give the full name first. So um, you are a co-founder of uh, North American Coalition of Lighting Industry Queers. Um, we're going to call that NACLIC for the, 
the purposes of the conversation. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the founding of your organization, um, what you feel the role is within the industry, and um, how this advocacy came about, why this advocacy came about in your career. Okay, I'm actually the founder. I'm the, the founder. founder. Yes, it was basically all me for a year and a half. <laughs> okay, my that's my mistake. I'm sorry about that. Oh yeah, not at all. It's it, it's easy to easy to mistake. Uh, Sarah Schonauer, my co-chair, uh, does a does a lot of hard work, uh, and she is amazing. I'm so glad to have her on board. Mm. But um, it started in the depths of the pandemic. Uh, it was the first. The first education, the first virtual education in the August, in August of 2020, I had I had come out in May publicly uh, mm -hmm. as transgender, uh, and the fall before I was sort of playing around with gender fluidity, but that was kind of a stepping stone. Um, but this education was really the first time I had approached the industry at all. Uh, as my true self. Hmm. Uh, and I was at a wild uh, panel discussion uh, just as an attendee, hmm. virtual attendee, about women in lighting, veteran women in lighting. Uh, so so a bunch of veteran women in lighting talking about the bad old days of, of just, just blatant misogyny and harassment. Hmm. Uh, and I started to form a question in my head about how that might, how there might be parallels to the modern queer or trans experience. And I, I came up with the question and I wanted to, and I typed it up and I wanted to hit send and I just couldn't hit the send button because I felt like I didn't have a voice in that room. I felt like I didn't mm. have the space to say, say that word, to, to say those words, to steal the focus of the conversation. Uh, now, in retrospect, I would totally hit send um, because I absolutely have a voice in that room, and also I know Wild is very a very supportive organization. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, at that moment, I didn't feel that way, and I walked away from that that panel discussion feeling alone and frustrated, mm. and like I did not have uh, a venue and a voice for me. So I actually talked to Kelly Roberts about it. Kelly Roberts, the president of Wild, mm -hmm. uh, about it. She and I are friends. And uh, and I told her I was kicking around the idea of starting something. And she said, go ahead and do it. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a Thursday. And by Monday, I had a website up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... Talk a little bit about what Naclick is working on these days. What what role you see it taking today in the industry? Because that's that's the origin story. Where are we today, and where where do you see it going as you or what what would you what are you prioritizing as we go forward? Right. Well, yeah. Uh, initially, it was about visibility and mutual support. Just just a beacon for for queer people in the industry to come toward and find one another and uh, in turn, let the world know that we exist. Mm -hmm. uh, things have changed a little bit in the last couple of years. There's been a very, very resurgent anti-LGBTQ sentiment uh, in, in certain places and certain, certain political ideologies. And we have had to pivot uh, as far as our mission goes in mm. response. Uh, we, as a matter of necessity, as a matter of survival, we need to take a more active and activist role in mm. this world. Uh, and to push the entities in this industry, the businesses and the organizations that have influence on the wider world to be vocal allies and be genuine allies. Mm. Let's pick up on that for a second. Um, what does a good ally look like? What are what are those? Because this is something that I I um, I think about a lot. You know, you don't want to 
um, and maybe this is, uh, I don't know, I don't think it's controversial to say, but I don't think you want to be like a Taylor Swift ally, right? Like where you're, you're taking this on to enhance your own star power, right? That's not where you want to be. Um, I don't want the Taylor Swift fans to come after me, but I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. Oh no, not the Swifties. Um, but, um, but when I think of, of an allyship that is more for bolstering your own, you know, brand or, or whatever, um, what does a good ally look like? What, what does that look like to you, both in the lighting industry and just in general? Well, and that's, that's exactly it. Uh, allyship, corporate allyship, uh, largely consisted of, of changing your logo on June 1st mm. and maybe, maybe, you know, trotting out a token queer employee on, you know, on a, on a website profile. Uh, and that's, it's tough because there, there's a certain amount of visibility that, that is necessary from the corporate world, uh, because this year is very different. That's not happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, just out of out of fear and and a, a desire to not rock the boat, I guess. Um, well, yeah. So I, I mean, uh, you do, only because you brought it up, I'll ask. I mean, I think there was a lot of like criticism about corporations sort of getting out there and and having a pride message um, and. Now it feels like they're pulling back from that. Now there's criticism that they're not doing anything, and so I don't. I, I, it kind of brings me back to the question of what does a good ally look like? How how do you do this in a right. way that's right? Yeah, right. Well, a good ally uh, walks the talk, uh, mm. meaning okay, you stick up, you put up your rainbow logo, great, uh, but you 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 gotta you gotta be supportive all year round, and you have to call the hatred out for what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, this, there's, there's no ethical path towards supporting this anti-LGBTQ legislation. For it, walking it, the talk, right? So is that a... I, I think people who... And I'm, I'm going to try to ask this in, in, in a way that is the most polite I can think of, but I think... People who are not directly affected by this debate or don't think they're directly affected by this debate, right? People, honestly, that are, you know, let's put it, let's put it the way it is. Straight white men do not think that this is a debate that really affects them day to day, right? Because the, the existing culture is sort of set up that way. Um, but I think there's plenty of people that are supporters, that are allies, consider themselves allies, who just don't know what, so what does that mean? What do I do? How do I act? You know, how do I actively become a part of this? Um, if that's the way I feel. Well, and that's that's just the thing. Uh, it's it's living with empathy. It's mm. realizing that even if it doesn't affect you directly, it affects somebody, and mm. nobody is free. You know, to paraphrase Martha P. Jo uh, uh, Marsha P. Johnson and and others. You know, nobody is free until we're all free. Mm. Um, so, uh, it's, it's recognizing that, that there is, uh, inequity, inequality mm -hmm. in this world and, and some, some pretty harsh discrimination and, uh, realizing that that's unjust and working against that, mm. being vocal in the opposition of that and in, in the support of the marginalized people that such, such measures and such legislation affects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and beyond that, giving money, you know, right now there are trans people who are fleeing states affected by this legislation. I mean, mm -hmm. literally fleeing. They are packing their bags and leaving, uh, leaving their lives behind, leaving jobs, leaving family to get out of these states that aren't letting them get the medication they need. That aren't letting them use public bathrooms, that aren't mm -hmm. letting them access medical care, uh, that that is that is more or less guaranteed to everybody else, uh, and that that takes money. That takes money that, mm -hmm. frankly, these people don't have. Mm -hmm. And so, 
you know, donating to these mutual aid organizations, that's another good good mm-hmm. thing to do and, and something that allies can do. So I think one of the reasons I wanted to start with your design history and the projects that you've worked on is I fear that the age of social media and the age of digital branding of ourselves can tend to flatten us um, within our industry because of, you know, my, my pandemic coping strategy was locking myself in a shed in my backyard and doing lighting demos. Right. And so when I go to like, I was at light fair, we, we saw each other at light fair. When I was at the party, I was like, Oh, you're that shed guy. You know, it's like, even well, great. Um, it, it just has a way of doing that. And I wanted to start with your design history because you were an integral part of designing an architectural icon that literally the entire country looks at every year. Um, you are an advocate. You are somebody who is involved in um, a cause that you, you believe in deeply because there are wrongs going on. But that is not all you are. And I think it is important that people understand that we can flatten each other out so quickly. We can so quickly just point out, you know, oh, she's an advocate for this and it doesn't really, it's not my thing. You're also a professional in this industry. You are also someone who has done something that we all watch on TV every year. Um, And that to me is important to continue to recognize that this is not just about um, arguing for argument's sake. This is about people that we work with, people that we respect, people that are an integral part to our culture are being um, threatened and marginalized. And we will all like, we would all lose out if your talents were not part of what happens every year on New Year's Eve. We would all lose a little something. And how many Alana Shepherds are there in the United States? And how many pieces of talents would we be losing? That's my concern here. My selfish concern is that there are more talented people out there that are not that would not have the opportunity to to add to our culture. Well, that's exactly it. That's that's exactly it. We're we're not we, but but there are forces that are snuffing out voices, hmm. snuffing out voices that are that are valid that are beautiful that need to be heard uh and and that's something i always say when when i when i speak at industry events is that is that we are a community in this industry it's it's Mm. you know people say the words lighting community but it's actually treating it that way you know Mm. bringing the community back into it it's it's a surprisingly small world mm-hmm. and to ignore our peers in that way even if there are only a few of us but there are more than you think frankly mm-hmm. uh we're just not very vocal mm-hmm. um is you know we, we just need to we need to support one another mm-hmm. it's, it's that simple right right um do you think your work or your advocacy either has or will inform your lighting design work going forward? Or do you think those are just kind of two separate parts of your brain, two separate parts of your being, and they don't really interact? Oh, no, absolutely. It does. Mm. It's, it really has made me reflect on everything I do. Mm. Uh, you know the the value of it uh, culturally uh who who benefits from every project i do and who who doesn't you know who is this negatively affecting so mm. you know from 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 a light justice standpoint mm. you know what is this doing okay that's interesting um there's a zaha hadid quote that i'm going to butcher because i don't have it in front of me but somebody asked her about her design aesthetic and if she thought that it had something to do with being one of the few major female architects uh, in the world at the time. And she said, of course it did. 
right? Like, like who I am is where what you're seeing. This is what I create because of who I am. Um, and I'm interested if you're on a similar journey with your your design work, you know, um, and and if the the full imagining of who you are, the full sort of um, understanding of who you are has changed you as a designer. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, I existed in the architectural lighting world for 15 years with uh, an invisible millstone around my neck. Mm. I didn't know it was there. I didn't fully realize it. Mm. Uh, and when I shed it, I felt like I had a superpower. I, mm. I had a confidence and a belief in myself and my abilities that, that unlocked so much more. Um, and that's, that's uh, one reason why I got back into the theater. That's kind of a longer story, and we haven't really touched on that. But, but, um, but it, it gave me the confidence to, to do theater again in addition to architectural lighting. Mm -hmm. And my confidence, as well as having all this architectural experience, has informed my theatrical design so much. Mm. Uh, my work is so much better now. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that that to me is another another aspect to this, another sort of human aspect to this is that um, very few creative people work as well when they're repressed in one way or another, right? Um, project constraints are different. I think project constraints can yield creative solutions, right? That's a that's almost always a good thing. Um, one day when I've had more to drink, I can give you my George Lucas theory, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, I think project constraints are good, but when you personally feel repressed and restricted, I cannot imagine anyone doing their best work. Um, it just doesn't seem possible to me. Um, and so... No, I had one hand tied yeah. behind my back that whole time. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I couldn't put my finger on it, and it, it, it annoyed and frustrated the people I worked with. Uh, I knew I wasn't doing my best work. Uh, I mm. knew that somewhere I had potential, more potential, uh, that, that, but things just weren't lining up. And once mm -hmm. I realized what it was and I, I, I accepted myself, I accepted who I am and came out to myself and then to the world. It changed everything. Mm. Mm. So what's next? What are the projects on the boards for you? What's what's going forward for whatever time frame you, you, you feel like sharing? Ooh, that's that's a big question. I mm. I right now I have my little one-woman shop in Spokane, Washington, uh, mm -hmm. and I pick up whatever this and that that I can, and occasionally I do some some consulting for other designers. Uh, but I've gotten some interesting offers uh, recently okay. to teach. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm I'm considering a move into academia. That'd be cool. That'd be very cool. Yeah, I've gotten to do a couple of guest lectures lately, and. Um... One of the things that was interesting is um, I, I did a guest lecture at, Par at Parsons, and you know my first boss in architectural lighting, um, it was actually just just at the start of LED becoming a, a viable source, like we were saying earlier. And I said, "Oh, it's going to use so much less energy, and you know, shouldn't we at least consider it for this?" And my boss um, said, "I don't give a shit. Um, my job is to make sure that it, everything looks great." And at that point, energy code really hadn't kicked in, really wasn't, um, um, uh, you know, like the, the driving force it is now. And fast forward to this, this guest lecturing, and we're asking these students to define their values and what values they're going to bring to a design project at the outset. And I think that's a very... It's a huge shift in the thinking of our industry. Um, 
that this is something that designers should be thinking about. Because I, I know the previous generation was not taught to think about that. They were taught to think about what looks good from a lighting perspective and stop thinking about everything else. And I think the culture has really shifted around that. And that's, I think, to the good. I think it's a good thing. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a fantastic parallel uh, when looking at issues of, of, an inclusion, of inclusion and equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, you know, if we, if we want to just, just put it out there, you know, the old white dudes uh, mm-hmm. in the industry say all the time, why do we need this? Why do we need this? Well, the reason why we need this is because the younger generation, the emerging professionals, won't have it any other way. And mm-hmm. if this industry isn't inclusive, they're going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, they've said okay. that much to my face. The inclusion and equity conversation gets a little broader. Um you know, and and I do think that there's just very direct technical lighting things here, right? Like, um, I did a panel on lighting and skin tone a few months ago, and um, the big takeaway from that was that not only do we not think about lighting different skin tones properly, we don't think about lighting people almost at all. <laughs> That's not a thing we think about. We think about spaces and tasks. We don't think about people. And so... Um, Nobody's happy with it because because of that, and I think that's an interesting conversation. Okay, well, I, I actually have thought about lighting people. I always think mm. about, um, I always have thought about skin tone uh, mm. in 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 bathrooms and dining rooms. Sure, um, you know, bathrooms you got to have a, a really high CRI light source. Um, you know, as high as perfect color rendering as you can get because there's someone in there putting on makeup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they're every day looking at, looking at their face, putting on makeup. And if they go outside and look, you know, a thousand percent different than what they just saw in the mirror, that's a problem. Sure. The problem with that, though, is whose skin tone was I thinking about? Right, right. Yep, yep. Right. And, you know, that was a, that was a, you know, moment yeah smacking moment um when it dawned on me that you know maybe there's other skin tones we should be considering and maybe you know 2700k or even 3000k is not uh the right the right white light to be considering for all people mm-hmm. you know there's a whole cultural difference there uh where 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 difference uh, color temperatures are actually more beneficial to different skin tones. You see in Asia and the Caribbean, uh, you, you know, you see 4,000, 5,000 K as the most desired color temperature because it's more more flattering to, the, 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 to darker skin tones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, <laughs> it's an interesting conversation because I think you know, we all come to these things with cultural biases that we are to varying degrees aware of or not aware of, right? Um, And so, of course, I was being hyperbolic. Of course, people have thought about lighting people in other contexts. But I guess what I meant is that when we look at the industry literature, we, we don't look at literature that talks about flattering tones. These are rules that were just sort of word of mouth passed down from designers teaching other designers generationally. Um, and there were certain people that were not at that table. Um, you know, our literature talks about, you know, how many foot candles at the table, how many foot candles vertically. It talks about contrast ratios and it talks about tasks and paths of egress and things like that. We don't have literature around this. This is more of an aesthetic conversation. And I don't, I think that to your point, the folks that were teaching you and I, because I'm not sure your age, but I think we're pretty close in age. Um, the folks teaching us uh, looked a certain way and had a certain set of things that they thought looked nice to them. And um, they looked a lot like us in terms of skin tone. And um, that's a whole other conversation. And, we, and I think there's the good news about that conversation is I think it's two-tone, uh, two tone, two um, pathed. There's a scientific conversation, and I think we can get to a higher fidelity light source. I think we can do better as an industry in defining what a good light source is. 
irrespective of color temperature. I think there's a way to have that spectral conversation and get to a better place. Um, the other side of it is trickier because you're getting into preferences. You're getting into, you know, um, getting a better sense for populational preferences. And that's a, that's a different conversation. And that's a one that I think is going to take more, um, cultural study and more, more sensitivity, I think. Yeah. Being aware though, is a, is a start. It's a start, yeah. you know, not painting every project with the same brush. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, at least taking taking into consideration that that maybe the person in that dining room or or the people, uh, you know, going into that bathroom won't necessarily look perfect under twenty seven hundred K. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just it's really is as simple as that, right? They just, <laughs> thinking about that across as many people as you can, and maybe re and that's a big redefining of um of paradigms for people though in this in this little industry of ours just to zoom it out to folks that aren't necessarily lighting people um any high-end restaurant that you've been in any hotel that you've stayed in that's you know of, of a certain quality um all of these decisions are made by lighting professionals right the way you look in a room the way you look in a hotel room the way you look in a dining room at a fine restaurant these were all decided. These were all factors that were designed by someone. And there are unconscious decisions that go into that about um, how we look and how we feel in these spaces. Um, and so I think just to frame this a little bit, what Alana and I are talking about is um, a very narrow sampling of those of people are making those decisions and broadening out and being more inclusive about Who's the, you know, who are we thinking about when we design all of these rooms? And I think about this about back of house a lot. Um, where, like back of house is where all the VE happens. And who's back of house, man? I mean, that's, you know, that's the problem, right? It's like, uh, I don't know. Anyway, that's a whole other, whole other conversation. There's, there's a whole light justice issue there. Yeah. You know, everybody deserves quality lighting. Mm-hmm. And when yeah. you think about it, we spend a ton of time and effort and money on the lobby of a hotel that people will be in. Guests will stay in for moments at a time. And we value engineer, which is a term I hate, but anyway, we, we value engineer the lighting back of, back of house in the kitchen spaces and the back hallways where people are spending eight to 12 hours a day working. Um, we... Uh, we value engineer that to the worst quality lighting because it's who we care about. Right. And that's oh, absolutely. It's not even in the designer scope usually. Yeah. 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 And you know, on my end of the world, what I do day to day, I can tell you that we're always being asked for what's cheaper to put back there to save a few bucks. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where people are spending, you know, 10, 12 hours a day working. So, all right, Alana, is there anything else that we should know about? Um, we're going to have links to NACLIC and we're going to have links to your work and your website in the show notes so people can look you up, uh, find you on Instagram, find you on LinkedIn. Um, is there anything? Alana, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, despite the horrible lighting I have in my, my little cubby hole here in WeWork, I appreciate it so much. I'll forgive you. <laughs> Just this one time. <laughs> yep. All right. Yep. Well, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity.